This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings, and today we are finishing our study of the life of Joseph, covering Genesis 41 to 50. Uh, Not all of that in excruciating detail, Um, some portions more than others, but um, Marty, since this is kind of the second part of Joseph, why don't we do a, a quick review of what we covered last time? Absolutely. And while we're at it, we'll remind ourselves of everything that came before that, because Genesis is that essential. So if you remember the preface, Genesis 1 through 11, we talked about um, uh, like a really, uh, I don't want to say simple, it's incredibly profound, a big premise of trusting the story. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 was all about God saying, listen, I've got your back. I'm going to remember the covenant. I've got the rainbow. I'm not angry. Uh, you got to trust me and you got to not give in to fear and insecurity. And there were all these stories of people who did. And that kind of became the, the, the thunderous premise of what God builds his story on is the human condition is going to be to give in to fear and insecurity, but you are loved and creation is enough and it's all there and you can trust that. And right about the time we're starting to feel hopeless, we get introduced to the family of God. They're not perfect, far from it, uh, but God found a group of people really a guy by the name of Avram, uh, who comes from good family stock, people of hospitality and people of charting a new course. And God says, I need to take that and we need to build on it uh, because you're somebody who's willing to lay down your life on behalf of other people. You're willing to trust the story. And, uh, and I want, I want to see where this goes. And so Avram partners with God and he makes mistakes and he learns lessons But ultimately, time and time again, the things that define Avram aren't going to be his worst stories. They're going to be his best stories, uh, which I hope would be true of all of us. But Avram's going to be defined by the moments where he leaned into the story and trusted that God had his best interest in mind, that God had his back, that he had value and worth. Uh, In the midst of struggling with those things, in the midst of doubting those things, that was the defining characteristic of Avram. And we saw that bear fruit in the life of his son Yitzhak. And then right about the time we're like, okay, this is going to be a short book. uh, We ran into Jacob, who seems to kind of take the plot of this family and just screw it all up because of who he is. Uh, But that's exactly what life is like. If it would have been too clean and too sterilized, none of us would have found it nearly as compelling. But we all can relate to the Jacob story um, because that's either we're Jacob or or our parents were Jacob or our children are Jacob or whatever. But we all know what it's like to have Jacob's in our story. Now, we talked about Jacob and we said if there is one redeeming quality, the one thing that God is really after in the life of Jacob is his heart to wrestle his heart, his, his, we called it chutzpah. He's got, he's got the stuff inside of him uh, that, that makes him want to dig and go. He doesn't, he's not the type of guy that's going to re- despise his birthright. He wants a birthright. And, uh, and even though the birthright isn't necessarily his, uh, God says, I can use a guy like you that wants, wants to be the firstborn. How about you come be my firstborn? And, and uh, it's going to be a hard struggle for Jacob all throughout his entire life, but it's not over uh, because we've gotten to the life of Joseph. And Jacob is very much a part of the story of Joseph, even though he's drifted off a little bit into the background and not the foreground. He's definitely still there. Um, now, before I get into the life of Joseph and review that, uh, let me just say the teaching of Joseph has gotten better over the years. It was really, really messy the first time I did Bema. Uh, it was even a little bit more messy the second time, but we've started to get better and better at it. I originally heard the teachings that have shaped my material on Joseph 
uh, and I promise you'll quit hearing this name so much, but uh, Rabbi David Foreman and his material in Genesis just changed everything for me. And his teaching on Joseph was incredible. Uh, the first time I heard it, it was in uh, eight hours worth of teaching, four two-hour lessons where he covered the life of Joseph. It was not what we as Westerners would qualify as uh, in, an entertaining lesson, uh, but by way of rabbinic teaching, I just loved it. And I've tried to take those eight hours and put it into like two hours of podcast, um, which is r- really kind of basically impossible, but hopefully we're getting better and better at being able to package it that way and not have to give it to you Um even though I'd love to, I wish I was as good as the rabbis were at teaching this stuff. And I'm just not, and that's okay. So, uh, all that being said, this may seem a little messy. Realize this is coming out of a lot bigger package that we're trying to repackage it a little bit, but story of Joseph, uh, we started, um, last week talked about, man, one of the things that I wrestle with, with Joseph is story after story after story. He seems to have a lot of his dad, Jacob in him. So he has these dreams. He gets dad's favorite. Dad kind of declares to all of his brothers, like, make no mistake about it. Joseph is my favorite. He's my Bahor. Even though he's not, technically, he is going to be my Bahor. Here's his double portion. Here's his second cloak. I'm going to make it really obvious that he is my he's my favorite son and just has this relationship with his brothers that he doesn't seem to have any wisdom or discretion in. And he should be old enough, especially in their culture, to have wisdom and discretion, at least enough to not go out and say, hey, I had this wonderful dream where you all bow down and serve me for the rest of your life. That's just very Jacob-esque. And so they obviously toss him into the the cistern, the pit, without water, and and they sell him to the traders. And we had this really odd story that's going to come back today, the story of Judah, all of a sudden, like this... We pause the regularly scheduled story to bring you this special message about Judah later in his life. So we talked about that and and how Judah had to kind of go through the angst. It, it had made its way full circle back into his life uh, as he had slept with Tamar. And that phrase of, do you recognize these things? And that word recognize came back into his life later. And he learned a lesson there that I think is going to shape our story today. And then we jumped back into the story of Joseph. Joseph went to Potiphar's house and everything goes his way. And Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with them. And he essentially says, listen, if I do that, I'll lose everything. So why would I do that? And it ends up backfiring. He ends up getting thrown in a pit again. And then while he's in the pit, he gets to meet the cupbearer and the baker. And they interprets dreams. And, and his one request is that they would remember him. Just lots of stories of what feels to me to be... Jacob-like self-interest, if you were to ask me. Uh, I struggle, I said last podcast, uh, with the story of of Yosef. And we always talk about the story of incredible faithfulness. And at this point in his story, I'm just struggling with that. Like, I get it. Yeah, he's following God, I guess. Um, God is blessing him. Sure, he's with him. But he was with Jacob, too. Uh, and it's just this weird angst I have in this story. So we'll have to see where that goes today. But with that, we're going to pick up in Genesis 41. And uh, Brent, if you don't mind reading, how about you uh, start reading? Yeah. And just want to mention, we do have a presentation for today. So we do. S- scroll down in your app, open that up or grab it on the computer or whatever and uh, follow along with us. So Genesis 41. When two full years had passed, 
Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Paro woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Paro woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Paro told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Paro, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Paro was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Paro sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Paro. Paro said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Yosef replied to Paro, but God will give Paro the answer he desires. Then Paro said to Yosef, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first, but even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream I saw seven heads of grain, full of good, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Paro, The dreams of Paro are one and the same. God has revealed to Paro what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Paro, God has shown Paro what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Paro in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. All right, so it's a good place to stop there. One of the things that <clears throat> Foreman talked about when he taught on this was a couple, there was a couple details in this dream that we find rather interesting. First of all, the cows come out of, what does that say the cows came out of in the dream? Out of the river, right? Yeah, and particularly out of... The Nile. And particularly out of... Uh, They came up out of the... Well, it says they came out of the Nile. Well, he was standing by the Nile. They came out of the river and grazed among the reeds. Okay, grazed among the reeds. That's uh, one of the interesting uh, things that uh, the oral tradition taught, and I believe it was Rabbi Akiva. I'd have to go back and double check that. 
But Akiva talked about, that's a Hebrew word we had no idea how to translate. The Jews didn't have any idea how to translate. There's no, uh, the root word is quite interesting, but Akiva said, well, we need to translate that reads, but then the teaching also surrounded the root word. And the root word for uh, this, this word reads is the word brothers. So these cows were grazing amongst the brothers as it sounds in its root form without translation help from the rabbis to tell us it's reads a more literal rendering is going to be, well, they, they grazed among the brothers. So we kind of keep that detail kind of hovering in the back of our head here. But Foreman said, what's interesting is that uh, essentially Joseph is brought out of the dungeon to come interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he tells Paro, he says, I can't, I can't interpret dreams like God can interpret dreams, but I can't. Um, and, and Pharaoh says, well, here's my dream. And then Joseph immediately just jumps in and just interprets his dream. Just right off the bat, no praying, no, and the Lord said, or, okay, Faro, Paro, here is, here is God, God's, inter- just immediately translates, uh, interprets, should we say, the dream for Paro. Now, we could say that something similar happened to the cupbearer and the baker in the last story, but the situation is pretty different, and, and Foreman was able to point that out really well in his original teaching. With the cupbearer and the baker, the problem is that there's nobody else there to interpret dreams. If you went back into the last chapter, they said there's nobody. We had dreams, and there's nobody here in the dungeon to interpret them for us. The assumption is if anybody was there, they could have interpreted them. Any magician, any dream interpreter from Egypt, any wise man could have interpreted their dreams. But here they are without that. And Joseph says, well, God can interpret dreams. Tell me your dreams. And then Joseph provides their interpretations. Here in the Pharaoh story... None of his wise men, none of his magicians, none of his right-hand men can interpret the dreams for him. It says all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Right. He's got everybody in on it. Right. And nobody can do this. Uh, and so this is a quite a bit different situation than what we had in the dungeon with the cupbearer and the baker. This is a big deal. And yet Joseph immediately interprets this dream. And so, so the question really becomes, how does Joseph interpret this dream uh, apparently um, almost on his own. I mean, we can say that God helped him, for, obviously, for sure. But Joseph just jumps in and interprets this. How does he do it so quickly and on his own? Well, we using this midrash from Akiva and this word for brothers, it gives you this hint that the midrash often gives you. And so as you dive into the midrash and you start wrestling with this, you, you find that in Foreman's words, there's one detail of Pharaoh's dream that if you know what that detail stands for, the dream interprets itself. If you know this one variable, the whole dream interprets itself. And that is the number seven. There are seven beautiful cows and seven ugly cows. There are seven full heads of grain and seven uh, weak heads of grain or whatever the translation was there, lean. Uh, And if you knew the sevens, the whole dream interprets itself. If you know that those are years, so the question becomes, how does, how does, how does Joseph know that the sevens are years? And if one starts to think of his life, you may already be on top of it. But one of the interesting things that we noted, that Foreman noted that we double checked on was the uh, reference of the cows. Have we run into a story where there was beautiful and ugly before? Uh, we certainly have. Where did we run into that before? We're talking Joseph's mom and his 
I don't know, stepmom, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, Leah and Rachel. And in fact, the linguistic tie is there when it talks about the beautiful cows and the King James, what did the King James, well-favored? Well-favored, yeah. And this one, it's sleek. Sleek. And that word is the same word that's used to describe when he sees Rachel. Yeah, sees Rachel. She's beautiful and sleek or beautiful and well-favored. Yes. So there are details in Pharaoh's dream that Joseph can immediately connect to his own story. It's almost as if when Joseph hears this dream, you wonder if he <laughs> you wonder if he internalized this dream and realized or thought or realized it was a message from God to him. It wasn't even to Pharaoh. Like almost interpreting the dream as a side. Like, yeah, 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 let me interpret the dream for you, but kind of knowing underneath the surface. Like this dream is really honestly about me and my life. Because the moment you interpret that, the moment you have that detail of sevens, well, my dad, well, he had to work seven years for a, uh, for a beautiful wife, but then he got the, well, ugly, I don't want to be crass, but the ugly wife, and then had to work seven more. The moment he looks back to his own story and goes, well, the ugly cows, oh, you're going to have seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. It kind of plays backwards in this story. It does. It plays backwards. And, and what's interesting is because he knows the details of years, he's able to even finesse the details of the dream. Like the, the ugly cows eat the fat cows, but you can't even tell. They, they're not, they don't get fatter. They don't get, they eat them, but you can't even tell. And he's able to say, man, this famine is going to be so bad. You're not even going to remember the abundance of the first seven years. So... It raises this kind of the next question I have on our our slide there. Uh, I just kind of want to put this. When Joseph interprets this dream, it's going to raise a really important question about his own journey and his own life. Because this dream of Paro comes out of his own life. But let's let's leave that hanging for just a moment because I want to make a passing observation here and ask this next question. What kind of a person is Joseph? I don't want to rush past this and forget it. So I just want to pause here and ask, in the middle of the story, what kind of a person is Joseph? He's confronted with this kind of, I don't know if it would be creepy, (laughs) what that experience would be. He's confronted with this dream that speaks to his own life, but he's also confronted with the harsh truth of Egypt, that there's going to be a famine, there's going to be an abundance, and then there's going to be famine, and this horrible, like, catastrophic eschatological end of days kind of nightmare is coming upon them. What kind of person is Joseph? So if you were to go back, Brent, to where we left off, let's go ahead and keep reading in the story. So I just had a thought. Yes. Do you think Joseph maybe feels like, I mean, he's not, obviously he's not the direct comparison to the, the beautiful cow, but he comes from the beautiful wife, right? So, sure. Do you think he feels like he has been, his position in the family has been eaten up by the brothers from the other wife? Ooh. Yeah. And the more you play with some of the details in this dream, the more you go, man, I wonder how, how far he took this and how far the personal, like the, the ouch factor, like how far, and we're going to get a little bit more into his story here when we come back in just a moment. But yeah, there's definitely a, you wonder how far he takes this. And it, it's not like he thinks of this all in one moment. Like he's going to interpret the dream and he's probably going to sit on this yeah. idea for right. who knows. Days, weeks, months, years. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. Okay, so continuing. Uh, so he just interpreted the dream, and we'll pick up in, like, say, verse uh, 33. 33. Yeah, okay. And now let Paro look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Now, I wonder who that wise man is going to be <laughs> that Joseph is. Still kind of feels a little Jacoby, a little self-interest. Hey, I don't want to go back to the dungeon. Find yourself a wise guy. Doesn't seem like any of these other wise guys around here are doing you much good. Yeah. I got just the idea. But don't worry about them. Let Paro appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. So they've got something to do, too. Yes. It's not like they're useless. That's correct. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Paro to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Paro and to all his officials. So Paro asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Paro said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph, or so Paro said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Paro took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Paro said to Joseph, I am Paro, but without your word no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Paro gave Joseph the name Zaphanath Paniah and gave him... Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. All right. So what kind of a person is Joseph? And it's interesting because it, if we were to put ourselves in this story, let's say we get a vision, we get a dream, somebody has a dream, and we can interpret that dream. And that dream has some really, really bad news. <laughs> Namely, you have this catastrophic end times, end of the world type famine that's coming upon the land. You are currently not in second of command of Egypt. You, what what would our response be if we were in Joseph's shoes? I feel like you'd probably try to sugarcoat it a little bit. Sugarcoat it. And let's say we just couldn't. Let's say at the end of the day, this is just really bad news. This is a really bad vision. This is a really bad famine. Then what? I don't know. I don't know either. Like, woe to us, like Americans, like, oh, fear-based, oh, oh. In our world, we would just be like, oh, write a newspaper article. This is horrible. What are we going to do? What kind of a person is Joseph? Joseph is a type of person that says, Pharaoh, here's this dream. It's got some really bad news. But guess what? Here's what we're going to do. And Joseph has the audacity or should I say the chutzpah, just like his father and his father's before him, he's willing to say, I know what's going to happen next in the story, but we also don't have to accept that as our final word. We get to decide how we're going to respond to this. So Paro, you bring me under your wing. Here's how we're going to attack this thing, and we're going to get through it. 
And I just, man, when I heard that from Foreman, I went, this is the reason that God has chosen this family. They know how to trust the story and they know how to push on and they've got chutzpah and they're going to be called all throughout the Torah and Tanakh. Torah is going to call them stiff-necked and stubborn all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. But this is the very attribute that gives them the stuff that they need to make it through the story. Now, so far in the Joseph and the Jacob story, I'm not seeing a whole lot of trust. I haven't seen the trust that I found in Abraham and Isaac, but it might still be coming. And so we want to kind of keep moving from there. But I'm going to bounce over to uh, our next slide and we we can get into this where we left off. You know, you you brought up these other questions. How far does Joseph take this dream in its self-application? What's interesting is that this is, this is definitely a theme from the author or authors of Genesis as they put together this story, because uh, we found this theme played out all throughout the life of Joseph up to this point. For instance, if you went back to the Jacob and Joseph story, you're going to find a template. You're going to find that, that uh, dad, Jacob, gives Joseph gifts, this technicolor dream coat or this second coat. He gives him these gifts. He, and then Jacob, uh, Joseph, excuse me, is going to go out and have dreams. He's going to go to his brothers and say, listen to my dreams. And, uh, and that doesn't go so well. And so his coat is stripped off of him and he's thrown into a pit. It says a cistern without water. The word that's used, uh, to talk about it. in that story is going to be a pit is one way you can translate that. Now, if we were to jump, uh, two chapters ahead to the, the next Joseph story, which would be the story of, of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, Joseph, you're going to find the same template. You're going to find he get gifts from Potiphar. Potiphar makes him the head of his entire household. You pointed out in the last podcast, there's nothing that Potiphar did that he had to think about except what he was going to eat every day. Like gifts from Potiphar. Potiphar's wife essentially has aspirations. Dreams is too literal of a word to use there, but she has aspirations. She says, Hi, come to bed to come to bed with me. I want to sleep with you. Uh, listen to these, this idea. He says, no, his coat is stripped again. And again, he's thrown in a pit. Like our English Bibles say dungeon, but the word there is the exact same word, which is a weird word to use. The author is doing that on purpose. You don't use that word to talk about a dungeon except in the life of Joseph. And you do that in the life of Joseph because it's, it's a callback to that first time he got thrown in a pit. And if we were to jump two chapters later, we get to our story today, but all of these items are reversed. What we see is that Joseph gets pulled from the pit. The very next detail, if you read it in the story today, is that he puts clothes on. He puts that cloak on. In every other story, it was torn off of him. Now it's put on him. This time it's going to be Paro that says, I've had dreams. Listen to them. And at the end of that, Paro's going to make him second in command of all of Egypt. Like this thematic template has worked all throughout the life of Joseph. Gifts, dreams, coat stripped into the pit. Gifts, dreams, coat, coat stripped and into the pit. And now out of the pit, clothes, dreams, gifts. Which is this interesting, um, let me ask you this, Brent. If you're Joseph back in the story where you got thrown into the cistern by your brothers, what are you thinking as you sit in the cistern? Well, initially you're probably thinking this is kind of a, a rotten gig. This is not a good thing. 
You're not feeling very loved by the brothers. No, you're not feeling very loved. But you kind of knew, like, look at the way he's behaving, right? He kind of knows that that's coming. But what has he got to be assuming? Well, he knows his dad is all about him. Yes, dad's, he's, my dad's got my back. He's on my side, right? So dad must be what? He'll, he'll know that I'm missing. He'll come find me. My dad's going to come get me. Uh, Foreman pointed this out in his teaching. Uh, Jacob doesn't, excuse me, not Jacob. Joseph doesn't know the details that we know. Like what kind of details would be really important to this story that Joseph doesn't know? Well, he doesn't know any of the conversations his brothers are having. He doesn't know Reuben is trying to save his life. Doesn't know that Reuben was on his he trying to do the other thing. The other brothers are dipping his coat in blood and lying exactly. to his dad. Okay, so he doesn't know the story that his dad's been lied to and his dad assumes he's dead. None of these details Joseph knows. None of these details would be assumed by Joseph. The assumption that Joseph has to make is my dad's going to come get me and dad never comes. Instead, he gets sold to these traders and I, he still has to think, well, dad will come find me. I mean, how bad does Jacob love this son, right? It's his favorite son. Dad will come find me in Egypt. Dad will come find me. Never shows up. Never comes. Uh, I mean, it's this. And at what point does... Joseph just kind of give up on this story of, man, I thought my dad would come after me. Do we have an idea of how much time this was? This would have been the very next verse we read, but it said Joseph was 30 when uh, Pharaoh Correct. put him in charge. Correct. Do we have an idea of how old he was when he was sold off into slavery? Boy, what the number 17 just rings in my head. Yeah, uh, I can't a... remember if that was in the text or if that was in oral tradition, but that's the number that rings in my head. But so, I believe that was in yeah. the text somewhere now that I think about it. 13, 13 years? Yeah. That's a long time to wait. It's a long time to wait. You kind of start to lose hope at that point, I think. And now this guy has, this Paro character has reversed the order of his story. He's taken his tragedy and turned it into fortune. And so, and by the way, uh, before we just run past it, you can also see this next slide here. You can also see in the stories that sit in between these same variables are at, are at play here. In the Judah Tamar story, there's clothes. Uh, Judah says to Tamar very similar words to what Potiphar's wife says to Joseph, come and sleep with me. Uh, there's gifts, there's clothes, uh, all kinds of stuff going on there. Uh, in the cupbearer and baker, you have dreams, you have interpretations, you, have, uh, you also had gifts. You had the, uh, the dungeon master making him the dungeon master. <laughs> My old D&D &D, D &D day is coming out there. Uh, you have the guard putting him second in command. You have, you have the, the, the cup bearer and the baker both pulled from the pit. So you have some of the same variables. They're in different orders, and I'm not exactly sure what to do with that quite yet in my study of this story. But I kind of give that to you and say, wrestle with whatever you see in there. I think there's some interesting things, particularly in the Judah and Tamar story. The one thing we're missing is the pit. I feel like the Judah and Tamar story seems to speak to us about forgiveness, and it may be pointing us towards the end of the story, but nevertheless, the, the details are still there. Boy, you know, okay, since since you're geeking out on D&D, I got to have my little geek moment. All right, I like so this. The, this, uh, this position that Joseph is in where he doesn't know where his father is, he right. feels man. So I just saw Rogue One recently, uh, this new Star Wars movie. And so the, the main character, she's kind of... Um, her father's taken away from her early in the story and uh he doesn't come back like somebody else comes and raises her and she hasn't 
talked to him for years and then she's on her own for a few years and then some people are trying to find her father so they come and talk to her and they say how long has it been since you've talked to your father she's like i haven't talked to him in 15 years and like do you have any idea where he is and she says i'd like to think he's dead that makes it easier yeah yeah and you think joseph 13 years later yeah maybe he's not thinking that the whole time maybe there's still a little thread of hope somewhere but you gotta think like my father's gotta be dead or something because he i thought he loved me more than that and if he didn't then that's i don't know if i want to accept that yeah yeah absolutely it's a wonderful parallel and so in a sense joseph is going to need a new hope if you will oh brother (laughs) oh boy nevertheless uh so so joseph is really at this point in his narrative he's having to wrestle with his identity uh and not like he realizes he's gonna but at this point in the story do you cling to the narrative of Egypt, do you cling to Paro as kind of your new daddy figure? I remember Foreman, when he taught on this, he said, Joseph's having to come to grips with who's your daddy. Like, who is he? Now, at this point, he might be just fine where he's at. Second command of Egypt. This story's turned out quite well. My family abandoned me. But then the very next chapter in the story, his brothers come back and they re-enter the story. And we're not going to read all of that. It's not in your presentation. But all of a sudden, in the next chapter, his brothers show up, and he realizes who they are, and they don't have Jacob's other favorite son. Remember, he had those two sons from Rachel. He had Joseph, and he had who? Uh, Benjamin. 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 Yeah, Benjamin, son of my right hand. Benjamin's not there. And you can imagine, Joseph was probably closest to Benjamin, I, I would imagine, Uh, the other son of his true mom and all that other favorite son of dad. Like you can imagine them being pretty close and he's not there because Jacob's not going to let his last favorite son out of his sight. Well, and his father's not there either. Correct. Yeah. Jacob's still home. Uh, He sent the sons on this basically a rescue mission to get food for the famine. And so Joseph, he channels a little bit of his inner Jacob and a little bit of deception. He says, I want to see this brother. Foreman suggested he may not even believe that Benjamin's even alive, especially the way they tell the story. Is it is it me that they're talking about? Is it Benjamin? But we're missing a brother. I want to see my favorite brother. So you go bring him and then we'll talk. But until then, I'm going to keep one of your other brothers. So this go, they go back home to Jacob and now they got a real problem on their hands because Jacob is not going to give up his favorite son again and lose this. Like he's already lost another son, now a second son, but he's certainly not going to take a chance of losing his other favorite son and making it three. So they come back and they say, listen, we can go back to Egypt. We can get a, get the other son back and uh, we, can, we can take care of this famine business. Jacob initially says, absolutely not. And uh, that's where we're going to jump into Genesis 43. And I'll go ahead and read this. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain that they brought from Egypt, so this has been a while, like this wasn't, Jacob said no, and they essentially wrestled with this for a while. Their father said to them, go back and get us some more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send one brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, I think I read that wrong. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the men said, the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, now, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? 
And they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know that he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and your children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible if I do not bring him back with you and set him here before you. I will bear the blame before you all my life, as it is. If we, as it is, if we have had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father said to him, "If it must be, do this." But some of that. So, at that point, Jacob finally agrees. Now, the first time, Reuben came to him, and Reuben said, "Listen, we got to go back down to Egypt, and there's no way we're going to get down there." He essentially said the same thing that Judah said. There's no way we're going to get down there and back without, without having Benjamin with us. So you got to send Benjamin. Listen, I will, I, Reuben had told him, I will, Reuben, who was the what, by the way? The firstborn. He is the Behor, right? And so he's trying to seize this role that he's always tried to seize in this story. He wants to be this firstborn. He tried to save Joseph's life before. Now he wants to save Benjamin's. And he says, listen, I know that you've already lost a son. If you don't get Benjamin back, you can have my two sons and we'll replace your two lost sons with my two sons. That's my collateral I can offer you. Jacob said, no. Jacob said, absolutely not. It's not what I want. An emphasis on the Jacob there. Yes. In that story, he is referred to as Jacob. Ah, and in this next story, he's referred to as Israel. Ah, so why the author deliberately using these two different names here? So I'll come back to that in just a moment because it's Judah that's going to kick that change off. When Judah comes and Judah starts having a conversation, Judah doesn't make the same offer that Reuben made. Reuben made an offer of, if I lose your son, you can have two of mine. But Judah says, if I lose your son, Benjamin, I will put my own life on it. And I think that's because if you remember, do you remember in Genesis 38, Judah had to leave. Judah was with the brothers. And then after Joseph gets sold into slavery, Judah leaves the family. And that's where the Judah and Tamar story happened. Do you remember that? Now, Judah's back. Somehow Judah's back in the family for this later story. But somewhere in between, Judah learned a lesson with the Tamar story that he now employs here. Because Judah has a unique understanding of justice. If you went back to our last podcast and listened to the story of Judah and Tamar, when she said, do you recognize these? And Judah had to come to grips with, she is more righteous than I. I now understand righteousness. I understand justice. I understand putting the world back as it should be. And he takes this newfound knowledge, much like, might I suggest, Abraham did when he learned his valuable lessons. He takes this newfound knowledge and he goes back to Jacob and he says, I essentially, he says, I understand you. I understand what you want is you want justice for the injustice. So let me put my own life on the line here because it was essentially, (laughs) he was the one that had this wonderful idea, if you remember, about what to do to Joseph. And he says, I will put my own neck. And this is what seems to get Jacob as you point out, to become Israel and kind of surrender to what God's wanting to do in this story. The first time he's Jacob. And whenever I see Jacob, I feel like what the author is trying to tell me is this is the Jacob, Jacob. This is the Jacob who's trying to look out for himself, 
who wants his favorite son, self-interest Jacob. And whenever the author says Israel, I feel like it's the author's way of saying, this is the Jacob that is surrendering to the will and the plan of God. And so Judah uh, puts his neck on the line. He gets Benjamin with them and they're able to go back. And it's going to be this reunion of everybody uh, showing up in Egypt. And ultimately, Jacob will also make his way back down there. This is where Joseph's going to ultimately be confronted with who he is. Is Joseph a member of this family of God? Is he a part of Avraham's Bedov and the household of God? Or is Yosef a part of Paro's family and a part of Paro's household? Is he going to be a person of vengeance? Because he has his family right where he wants them. If he wants to take it out on them, he's got every opportunity now. And he even struggles with that, it seems like, through the story, really setting them up. Or is he going to be a person of forgiveness? Uh, the, the Hebrew word here they speak of is chesed, love, compassion, generosity, forgiveness. Who is Yosef going to be? And so there's a couple of things that I put here as a, as a closing thought. This whole story of Genesis kind of comes back around full circle. The family of God that we learned about all throughout the story of Genesis, starting with Avraham, ending with Yosef, these are people who understand justice and forgiveness. The family of God are going to be people who understand what it means to put the the story and the world back together. They're going to be people that even though they struggle with self-interest, they're going to be people who are willing to ultimately tell a narrative of self-sacrifice. And that one act of Judah to essentially put his neck on the line and save, essentially save Benjamin, this narrative is going to come back up throughout the story. Uh, There will be other stories in Torah and other stories in Tanakh. In fact, you can think ahead to David and Jonathan. Who is, jo- who is Jonathan going to be a descendant of, Brent? Saul. Who is a descendant of which tribe? Uh, Benjamin. Benjamin. Yeah. And who is David, a descendant of who? Judah. And in that story, who saves who? Uh, Jonathan saves David. Right. Benjamin saves Judah. Yeah. See, this story going to keep coming back. The story of the book of Esther is going to be the exact same thing. Uh, all throughout Tanakh and the Hebrew scriptures, you're going to see the family of God and the people of Israel and the people of Judah remembering, going back in this story, back in their own narrative to the story of Yosef, and remembering what lies at the heart of their family. At the heart of their family lies forgiveness, lies generosity, lies chesed. And whenever they're willing to stake their claim on that, whenever they're willing to, to do for others as Judah did for Benjamin, Benjamin multiple times is going to come back to this story. And it's going to be Benjamin that puts his neck on the line for Judah. And then Judah's going to put his neck on the line for Benjamin. And then Benjamin's going to put his neck on the line for Judah. And you have this play all throughout their scriptures of what forgiveness can do and its ability to put the world back together, which is one of my last thoughts here on this podcast is the family of God is full of people who trust the story like Genesis started with a preface telling us what it meant to trust the story. And we were introduced to a family who did trust the story. 
And it began with a man who would be willing to leave his home. But life is more complex than that. And so as this dysfunctional family continues to grow and the dysfunction continues to grow, this trust that was simple and profound ends up becoming more and more complex. And at the end of the book of Genesis, it's going to be about forgiveness. And the thought I have here is forgiveness is one of the ultimate expressions of trust. In fact, I wrestle with whether or not forgiveness is the ultimate expression of trust in this story. In order for you to lay down your right for vengeance and lay down your right to get even and lay down your right for what we would think of as retributive justice, you lay that down as one of the most ultimate acts of trust because you're saying, God's got this. I can trust that God's got this. I'm not going to replay Cain and Abel. Not going to do it. Not going to replay that story. Know how that story ends. Not interested in that kind of tragedy. But I do believe I can do the right thing here. And what's so interesting is Joseph doesn't replay Cain and Abel. Joseph forgives. And it's how the book of Genesis kind of ends. This is going to be the setup. This was the introduction that's going to allow us to understand what the narrative of God is all about. It's a pretty compelling story. Yeah, so good. And I wish you could hear the eight-hour version of it. (laughs) By the way, his teaching is called uh, a few different things. Um, uh, Goats and coats is how it's often phrased. There was a teaching on TorahAnytime.com or .org, but Torah Anytime had a teaching that uh, was uh, about goats and coats. Uh, It'll sometimes be called the sale of Yosef uh, is another one of the titles that he, understanding the sale of Yosef, is another one of the titles that Foreman gives to this teaching. Um, there's a few different places where it's in different forms. So if you want to find it, uh, if we can find any links, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. And um, yeah, it's out there. And he does a lot more thorough job of making these points than I did. Yes, thorough is an accurate way to describe <laughs> Rabbinic teaching at its finest. Yes. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. If you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.